Larry Walters was a truck driver, but his lifelong dream was to fly. When he graduated from high school, he joined the Air Force in hopes of becoming a pilot. But he was disqualified because of his poor eyesight. So when he finally left the Air Force, and after watching planes fly across the sky, he got a brilliant idea. He went down to the local Army-Navy surplus store. You remember those? Yeah, Yeah, Army-Navy surplus store. And bought a tank of helium and 45 weather balloons. Now these are not your your brightly colored party balloons. These were were these heavy-duty spheres measuring more than four feet across when fully inflated. Well, in his in the backyard of his San Pedro home, Larry used straps to attach the balloons to a lawn chair. The same kind of lawn chair that you would have in your backyard. He anchored the chair to the bumper of his Jeep and inflated the balloons with helium. Then he packed some sandwiches and beer, a radio, a camera, and a loaded pellet gun, figuring he could pop a few of the balloons when it was time to come down, ideally landing somewhere safely in the Mojave Desert. That was the plan. Unfortunately, on July 2nd, 1982, things did not go as planned. And instead of gently floating into the sky like he imagined, he shot up like a bottle rocket until he leveled off at 16,000 feet. Understandably, Larry freaked out. And even more so, after he drifted over the controlled airspace of the Long Beach Airport and realized he was not alone. For he was spotted by at least two commercial airline pilots who alerted air traffic control about a guy in a lawn chair with balloons who also notified the Federal Aviation Administration. True story. At the great height of 16,000 feet, Larry was fearful. Go figure. 
fearful that if he popped the balloons, the wrong balloons, he would become unbalanced and fall out of the lawn chair. However, after flying for 45 minutes, he eventually worked up the courage. I'm assuming there was beer involved, okay? (laughs) Worked up the courage to shoot out some of the balloons. He descended slowly. And after a total of 90 minutes in the air, he finally reached the ground, becoming entangled in power lines in Long Beach, causing a 20-minute power outage through the entire area. Once Larry climbed down from the power pole, he was immediately arrested by the Long Beach police and later fined. When speaking to the press... And answering the question, why did he do that? He responded, it was something I had to do. It was something I had to do. This morning, as we continue in the Gospel of Matthew we are going to be introduced to some wise men who, like Lawn Chair Larry, that's what they called him, Lawn Chair Larry, did what they had to do. They traveled from afar to worship the king. So, I just lost my voice. So, (laughs) if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. It's going to be one of those mornings. Okay. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod, the king... Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. In the days of Herod, and these were very dark days, Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. And we are specifically told it was Bethlehem of Judea because, drum roll, there is another Bethlehem, much farther north in the region of Galilee. Okay? So this is Bethlehem of Judea. In the days of Herod, And we have talked about him in the past, if you recall. But I want to give you a little more this morning because he is a key character in this passage. If you don't know, Herod was an Edomite, not a Jew. 
he's a descendant of Esau, not Jacob. Okay? A descendant of Esau, not Jacob. And he gained political influence through his friendship with Mark Antony. Mark Antony, who was a very powerful person in Rome at that time. And as a reminder, if you've seen the movie, this is the same Mark Antony who had a thing for Cleopatra of Egypt. Well, later, Herod was appointed the king of Judea by the Roman Senate. And when Gaius Octavian defeated Mark Antony in a civil war and became the undisputed Roman emperor, Herod, although a former friend of Mark Antony, was allowed to remain in the position as the king of Judea. A puppet king for sure, because he was collecting a lot of taxes for Rome. It is said that Herod was a little man, just over five feet tall. A little man who wanted to prove he was a big guy. As such, he took on colossal building projects in Jerusalem, erecting palaces and amphitheaters and creating aqueducts. He built several fortresses to include the fortress of Masada. Ring a bell? Masada. And he founded entire cities such as the port city of Caesarea to accommodate the growing population. Then to gain favor with the Jews. Not that he really cared for them. He remodeled and expanded the temple in Jerusalem to include the Western Wall. This little man Herod was a great builder with an even greater ego. Often driven by paranoia and jealousy and cruelty. He murdered some 8,000 Jews during his reign. He executed his favorite wife, favorite wife, Merami, the one he loved, the one out of ten. He executed Merami, and he assassinated anyone who threatened his throne to include three of his own sons which prompted the Roman emperor to say of Herod, it's better to be Herod's pig than to be his own son. Later, well into his 70s, after executing Merami, Herod contracted a disease 
And this is how the first century historian Josephus describes it in his book called Antiquities of the Jews. He writes this of Herod. The the disease then seized upon his whole body and distracted it by various torments. He had a slow fever, and the itching of the skin of his whole body was insupportable. He suffered also from continuous pains in his colon, and there were swellings on his feet like those of a person suffering from dropsy, which is an accumulation of excess water. While his abdomen was inflamed and his privy member, that's his words, his, his privy member so putrefied as to produce worms. But, and the youth are missing all this. I know, I know, I know. Besi- I know. Besides this, he could breathe only in an upright posture and then only with difficulty. And he had convulsions in all his limbs so that the diviners said that his diseases were a punishment. Okay? In layman terms, medical researchers today who have studied all this suspect that Herod suffered from a chronic kidney disease. Okay? A chronic kidney disease. But, as a separate medical condition, it seems he also contracted gonorrhea, which developed into gangrene of his private parts. Parts that became putrefied and infested with maggots. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I'm all about warm, fuzzy feelings, right? That's right, that's right, that's right, that's right, right. yeah. It is said that Herod smelled so bad, go figure, that his guards could only be around him for a very short time before they got sick themselves. Anyway, nearing his death and realizing that no one would mourn for him, Herod ordered the arrest of one of 100 of the leading men of Jerusalem. He put them in prison and demanded that the moment he died, those 100 men were to be taken to the arena and killed instantly. His reasoning, he stated, here's the reasoning. 
If the city won't mourn for me, let it mourn for those who die with me. The men were arrested. And Herod eventually died. But his final order was never carried out. So that's the King Herod we are dealing with. Okay? That's the King Herod we are dealing with in this passage. He's a terrible character. But there was another cast of characters who entered the scene. And it's the Magi, a word that literally means wise men. Now, contrary to the many nativity stories and the hymn, these wise men were not kings. Sorry. They were scholars and and stargazers who looked to the heavens for signs. And with regard to their numbers, we don't know how many there were. There were at least two for sure. At least two. Because the word magi is plural. Okay? At least two. Yes, there could be three. But there could be 300 just as well. And I guess what I'm trying to say in here is this. Don't let the number of gifts they later give dictate the number of people with those gifts. Make sense? And on a side note... If you happen to drop and break one of your figurines, don't worry about it. As long as you got two, you're okay. Okay? Two's all you need. I'm all about helping people. That's what I'm doing here, just helping you out. Okay. So we are told that these magi come from the east, come from the east, likely with a large entourage. Maybe from the area of Persia, maybe from Babylon. And something, we don't know, but something from their knowledge and understanding, possibly something recorded long ago by, by Daniel, possibly, triggered them to follow a star. A supernatural star. The star of the king of the Jews. Well, the Magi, with their entourage, show up in Jerusalem, the capital city. They go to the palace where they would reasonably expect to find the king. Right? That's where you find a king. In the palace. And they ask, where is he? Show us where he is. 
where is the king that was born the king of the Jews? We have come to worship the king who at his very first breath is the king. That's what they're saying. Where is he? Now, as I've already pointed out, Herod was paranoid and jealous and would kill anyone who threatened his throne. So as you might imagine, these questions by the Magi got his undivided attention. And with that, Matthew tells us, beginning with verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. When Herod heard the news of a rival king, okay, of a rival king, he was troubled. He was agitated like boiling water. That's the picture. Agitated like boiling water. And when he was agitated, so was the city. Because no one knew what this crazy man would do. Herod then summons all the chief priests and scribes, the Jewish religious leaders, we might say the Jewish wise men. And he questions them over and over again as to where the Messiah was to be born. Now I got a question. How does Matthew know about this activity, this conversation that occurred in the palace? I mean, he tells us things in his gospel that no one else tells us. For example... It's only Matthew who tells us about the guards who freak out and pass out when an angel appears and rolls the stone away at the Lord's tomb. Only Matthew tells us that. Only Matthew tells us about this conversation. So how does Matthew know this? Remember, 
Matthew had been a tax collector for Rome. And he spent a large portion of his life in the presence of guards. Often in the presence of guards. He apparently had inside connections. And it appears he learns what occurs in the palace. In the palace, Herod demands to know where the Messiah was to be born. And the religious leaders who don't even bother to search the scripture to find an answer say, like, well, duh, he is to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. Which is about five miles away from Jerusalem. Just five miles. Then they make reference to the words of the prophet Micah given some 700 years earlier. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. You want to hear something mind-boggling? These Jewish religious leaders who call themselves God's people. Who obviously knew Old Testament prophecy. They just quoted it. They just pointed the way for Herod, right? To a town just down the road and yet, they do not seek out the Messiah. Their Messiah. They do nothing. What does that say about you and me? Sometimes... We think knowing God's word is good enough. But it's in the doing. It's in the obeying. Not merely in the knowing. You and I can easily become just like these Jewish religious leaders saying, well, I read my Bible. I know the Word. I know what I should be doing. And that's good enough. No. God's blessing is in the doing. Not just in the knowing. Anyway, Herod sends the religious leaders away. 
but he has more questions. And beginning with verse 7, we are told, Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. So Herod calls in the Magi and grills them as to when the star first appeared. We are not told their answer to Herod. We are not told their answer to Herod, but we can assume that their answer led Herod to later slaughter all the boys two years old and younger in Bethlehem to kill this rival king who threatened his throne. After getting his answer, Herod tells the Magi to go to Bethlehem to carefully search for the child. Not the baby, different Greek word, not the baby, but the child. Who could be two years old by now. And when he is found, come back to Jerusalem and let him know so he can worship the Messiah as well. Now, of course, we know that was an outright lie, right? Herod had no intention of worshiping the new king. He's out for blood. He's out for blood, but at this point, the Magi don't know any of this. Then, beginning with verse 9, Matthew tells us this. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. So the magi leave the palace, and this supernatural star reappears and leads them right to the place in Bethlehem where Jesus was just five miles away. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream, did not return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. The Magi and their entourage 
Come to the house. Come to the house. Not a stable. Not a cave. There's no manger mentioned here. But to a family residence where Joseph and Mary were now living. And they saw the child, not the baby, but the child with Mary. Joseph is not mentioned here. Maybe he's at work. Don't know. We're not told. But they see Jesus and these Gentiles. These are Gentiles. These Gentiles fall to the ground and they worship Him. We're told the Magi give treasures to Jesus. Expensive treasures of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And let me say something about these treasures. Probably like you, I have read all kinds of commentary and have heard all kinds of messages which attach some sort of symbolism to these, these items, right? Generally, it's said that gold symbolizes royalty. Frankincense, which is a, a gum resin from a tree, it's used in incense, is symbolic of divinity. And myrrh, which is another resin from a tree, it's used in medicine and in perfumes and in incense, apparently speaks to humanity. I mean, without a doubt, these treasures were absolutely fit for a king. They were fit for a king. But they were also common items of exchange in that day. Okay? They were common items of exchange in that day. Items the Magi would have needed to make their long trip from the east. And as we will see next week, the same items that Joseph and Mary, along with Jesus, would likely need to fund their escape from Bethlehem to Egypt, to escape from Herod. Now, we are not told how long the Magi stayed in Bethlehem. But when the time came to leave, after being warned by God in a dream, they did not return to Herod. Instead, they quietly went back home a different way. Surely, as a different people. Surely. So this morning, we looked at several characters. In this passage, we first looked at Herod, who was hostile towards Jesus. 
And he sought to destroy Jesus before he became a threat to his throne. Herod was afraid of this rival king who would interfere with his life. Who would make demands of him and would expect obedience and submission. Herod wanted to rule. Herod wanted to rule. And you know what? Today is no different. People are still hostile towards Jesus because he threatens their right to rule. He threatens their right to rule their own lives. They don't want Jesus to interfere. Jesus bothers them. He changes their plans. And they are not willing to submit to Him as Lord. Secondly, we looked at the Jewish religious leaders who were indifferent towards Jesus. This is still amazing. These were the teachers of Scripture. They knew the facts. They could have won first place in the Bible trivia contest. They had the book knowledge, but their hearts were far from God. They told Herod exactly where the Messiah could be found. Not across a desert, but right under their noses. Just five miles away, and yet they don't even tag along with the Magi to see Jesus for themselves. Their Messiah. Don't even tag along. And today we have plenty of religious people who claim to know Jesus and yet because of their indifference, there is no difference in their lives. And then finally we come to the Magi who sought to find Jesus. And here's the beauty of it. And the only reason, the only reason they sought Him out is because God took the initiative and sent them a supernatural sign from heaven that they connected to the King they had to worship. God took the initiative. He took the initiative. And they responded. He took the initiative and they responded. And today, the mere fact 
that anyone hears the Gospel and is convicted of their need for a Savior is evidence that God is still, even today, taking the initiative. He still takes the initiative. And so the question then becomes to us, how are we responding? Each of us, each of us, must choose how we will respond to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this, this time in Your Word. And Father, I, I pray that I, I, it was pleasing in Your sight. I thank You for it, Lord. Heavenly Father, I pray that You would take Your Word and in through Your Word, You would move our hearts. Give us a passion and a love for You. Give us a desire to follow You, to obey You. Help us to trust You, Lord. And Lord, I pray, even this morning, we would be a different person from the way we came in. Father, help us, help us to decide what we will do with Jesus. Moment by moment, step by step, day by day. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I was, uh, actually, as I was just reading that, I was reminded of a very similar question by Pontius Pilate at the end of the Lord's life. Remember the question? What am I to do with this man called Jesus? What am I to do? It's a great question. What am I to do? I hope we're never like these these religious leaders. I hope and pray that you know you don't come here on you come here on Sundays and and I'm, I'm I'm trying to feed you God's word, but I hope it doesn't just stay here. I hope you carry it once you walk out the doors. It actually changes your life somehow, some way. I don't know how, but somehow, some way, it has an influence. It impacts you. 
I don't want to be the same person that I came here and leave the same way. I want to be different. I think it's what worship does. Remember David's words? Worship that costs me nothing probably isn't worth anything. My life has to change. David could have taken the easy way out and just taken the property that was offered to him. Right? He could have taken all that. That's the easy way. But David says, no. Sacrifice is costly. Worship is costly. What are we willing to sacrifice? I'm glad you came this morning. Maybe you're here and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He loves you more than you'll ever know. His purpose is that you would have eternal life. That's His purpose. And a full and meaningful life in the here and now. That's His purpose. That you might have life. But you know what? We got a problem. We have a problem of sin that prevents us from experiencing God's purpose for our lives. We have a problem. It's a sin problem. We all have it. God has a purpose. We have a problem. But God is so good. He is so gracious. He is so loving. He sent a remedy. And His remedy was Jesus Christ, His own Son, to take the penalty for our sin. That was His remedy. That's the only remedy. No other remedy. He sent His Son because He loved us so much. He sent His Son. Jesus was the remedy to our problem. And we just respond by faith. Lord, thank You so much for going to a cross for me. Come into my heart. Take control of my life. Make me the kind of person You want me to be. Maybe you've never prayed to the Lord like that. I would love to talk with you, even lead you in prayer. Maybe you're looking for a church home. We would love to have you. Or maybe there's something else. You just need prayer about something else. I'd love to pray with you. So this morning, however the Lord leads you, I just ask you to respond. Just respond in worship. Larry?